District of Conservation is sponsored by CFACT. To learn more about our sponsor, head over to cfact.org. Thank you so much for listening. Welcome to District of Conservation. I'm your host, Gabriella Hoffman. This podcast offers a sober examination into all things hunting, fishing, shooting sports, energy, environment, and the public policy surrounding it. And this podcast also specializes in original interviews that you won't hear elsewhere. Here's what I have for you today. Conservation Nation episode 11 is live. I hope you are watching it or have found it. And if not, remedy that today. As promised, we always have expanded interviews with those we interview in the video. And today I'm proud to share the first of two interviews with you all. We're going to first speak with Andrew Sandstrom, who is a political consultant and conservationist. He is fresh out of college. And we talked about the musings from the video, but we expanded to a more contemporary conversation because since the time had passed, I wanted to pick his brain about updates to national monuments. There's now a co-sharing agreement between tribes and the federal government. Uh, We wanted to talk about the U.S. Senate race, which isn't supposed to be competitive, but for some reason, some of my peers in media are making it more competitive. We assess Senator Mike Lee's record with Evan McMullen, his challenger, and we talk about different caveats there. And the future of conservation, what people have to understand about Utah's perspective and that a lot of people misrepresent what happens in Utah. So I think you will enjoy hearing from Andrew. I can see him as a emerging young leader from out west who takes a more nuanced approach to western public lands. I think you'll be hearing more from Andrew in the years coming. I think he's going to be a great voice for Utah conservative conservationists. And you guys get to hear him first before he gets to talk to more people. So we love profiling up-and-comers. Andrew is one of those. And we hope you enjoy our conversation with him on the podcast today. Andrew, thanks for jumping on the podcast. Again, we're going to re-record our previous correspondence because a lot actually has happened since we filmed together in Utah. But I wanted to bring you on to kind of demystify conservation ethos and practices in Utah, your involvement in our now part two to our my public lands report for Conservation Nation and kind of what is going on out west. So thank you again for revisiting with me on the podcast. Yeah, it's great to be here. And uh, I serendipitous, I think, to be recording this again because a lot has happened since we last spoke with this issue. So I'm really excited to talk about it. Absolutely. And since this is the first time my listeners will learn of you, I think I've mentioned you briefly that we're going to be sitting down months ago after we recorded our episode together of Conservation Nation. But can you formally introduce yourself and tell my listeners how you got interested in conservation and public lands? Yeah, so I am a recent graduate of BYU living in Utah, uh, having, I'm from Utah originally, uh, grew up in Ogden and have lived here my whole life. Um, my wife's from Colorado Springs and, uh, my son was born in Utah. So, you know, we're a family that it has very strong roots here in the West. And, uh, I grew up as a boy scout and hiking and backpipe backpacking and have recently learned how to fly fish and have gotten into hunting for the first time in my life. That's not something my family does, but I have neighbors who've helped me navigate that. So I have a background of really caring about and loving uh, my home, the place that I live. And I also love 
the history of this area, uh, both pioneer history, indigenous history. I really love learning about the people who lived here. So I always kind of had a background that made me a little bit um, predisposed to engage on these issues. But then when uh, in 20, uh, 2016, when President Obama declared the Bears Ears National Monument, I saw a lot of this is such a cliche word now, but misinformation or just an overused word. But uh, I saw a lot, a lot of uh, myths and narratives that were wrong portraying the state. And the more I got into that, the more I learned about that um, started, that actually got me involved. I was a, at the time a political science major at, at Brigham Young University. I started to go to uh, events I started to take classes, I mean, related to environmental policy, and then that got me working in environmental policy and issues and advocacy, and now that's what I do, and it's really, really wonderful and rewarding work. I'm often told, and I think a lot of us are often told, that Utahans hate public lands, and from what you just stated, it doesn't sound like you hate public lands. Why do you think that perception is put out there? I've been to Utah. I've seen Utah public lands I know not everyone agrees with the model that Utah has, and some even Utahns disagree sometimes. I think even among the center-right in Utah, they sometimes agree to the extent of, do you want you know where public land should go? But I've been to Utah. I have plenty of friends in Utah, and I don't see this accusation of you guys being anti-public lands to be true. Why do you think people often say that is the case? Because you guys question the size and scope of national monument designations, for instance. Well, I think more, I mean, I think we get the more broad attack of being anti-environment. And we get that a lot. Uh, I think just because we're, we're such a red state and because of opposing these monuments. Uh, I mean, maybe people have found out that at night I look out my window where I can see Mount Ben Lomond and I just wish I could burn the whole thing down and mine every last rock. And, you know, no, you know, nobody feels that way about the land here. We really love the land. Uh, and I, I think, uh, I think, the the reason people perceive that is simply because the policies that we're on board with aren't the policies that pub that popularly you're supposed to be behind if you care about the environment. And so like in most environmental issues with public lands, conservatives and right-leaning types and center-right and just people who are apolitical but love their families and their communities and want to take care of the land but don't really trust the federal government – to, to do so. We ha haven't been at the table. Uh, we haven't had a seat at the table. And so uh, when we come to that table and, and have some input about the way we want these lands managed, there's a lot of disagreement. And unfortunately, that disagreement is often turned into a sort of vituperative attack on our motives, which uh, is usually, if not unjust, completely unjustified, pretty exaggerated. We can talk more about the Utah perspective on conservation. I want to ask you briefly, I don't know if public lands has kind of been the subject of the Senate race between incumbent Senator Mike Lee, who's often accused of being anti-public lands, and the turncoat, in my opinion, Evan McMullen, who claims to be conservative, but seems by all indications to be far to the left, um, despite saying that he is a conservative. You know, I don't know if he's a turncoat as much as he is like a multicolored dream coat. I, I'm not sure what he is. <laughs> Has public lands come up 
in the debate. And I mean, it shouldn't be a competitive race. We're making it re- be relatable to the podcast, guys. This is not just about Republican politics, but I know conservation is for listeners listening. This is important. We're making it relevant. Uh, so, Andrew, do you think that um, <clears throat> or has the subject been brought about that much in the Utah race? So I haven't watched the entirety of the debate from the other night between the two. I have not seen it come up a lot in media, except I, I've seen a couple of attacks on Mike on Mike Lee for, um, I mean, one was about his Sutherland Institute address where he talked about his Houses Act, and they criticized him for the way he talked about uh, Bureau of Land Management land. Uh, but I, I mean, I haven't seen it be a huge issue but i again i haven't watched the entirety of that debate yet i mean in any like op-eds or anything that have come out have some environmental interest said mcmullen is better because lee is a traitor to public lands or something of that nature i i bet you those takes have been published in the salt lake tribune and maybe some of the other papers i feel like that's where they would go with criticism of the senator well well you know the senator has a record to run on which evan mcmullen doesn't so there's real there's stuff that you can look at and criticize with Lee, whereas you can't with McMullen. He can run on, I mean, you know, he he can run on a vision that he he kind of that that is that is as of as of right now made up, right? That's um, that's the problem with when you work in politics, especially if you're you try to do a good job, uh, like I believe uh, the Utah delegation does. You you end up you have to operate in the real world, and and because of that, I think what I've seen more is is less. Uh, praising McMullen because again he doesn't really have a record to be praised for in that regard but I've seen attacks on Lee for again for the Houses Act uh which uh for your listeners is is an act uh that his office produced that would uh allow the Department of the Interior to sell some public lands to uh rural communities to develop them into residential houses housing uh, developments hence Houses Act uh but uh, and just general, I think, attacking him for his ideology. Uh, he's, you know, very conservative, very libertarian, you know, on the right. Uh, and because of that, he uh, has not been the greatest uh, champion of the policies that people on the left of the environmental perspective would really prefer to pass. And so I think just by virtue of his politics and, you know, being a being the the um spending hawk that he is and and uh wanting to block unnecessary spending uh i've seen a little bit of i i seen i've seen him get some flack for that yeah i have some friends who agree with lee i think on most positions they're out of state people of course who agree but they're very critical of the houses act i haven't read much into it i am a little bit nervous about that because of the public lands issue being so delicate, even if you don't agree with some of his positions on public lands. And I've confronted the senator. It was a very soft confronting. I wasn't trying to (laughs) provoke him or anything, but we went into detail when I interviewed him in January 2021 about his positions and he was gracious enough to come on and he rebuked a lot of the criticism that was sent his way. I don't necessarily agree with selling off all public lands to 
private uh, private interests or to the states necessarily. Um, that's a whole nother debate to be had there. But I think on most issues, even on some public lands issues, I know Lee is really good on, let's say, big game species management. I don't have any disagreement with him there. I think on the gun issue, he's great on the Second Amendment. And I think even some public land supporters and conservationists can disagree with some of his public lands positions, but still see him as a more preferable choice to, like you said, Evan McMullen, who... We don't know where he's going to stand if he were to be elected, but he's not most likely because he could vote with the left preservationist left to not allow for new oil and gas leases. He could vote for restrictions, bans. And those, I think he'd, those I think he'd be a reliable he preservationist vote. Yes. Mm-hmm. Those are the favors he owes. And that's that's my one concern. Uh, not my one concern, but one of one of my concerns and why I'm uh, not and not going I'm not planning on voting for Evan McMullen is is because he. Despite having run on a really interesting uh, platform of wanting to be independent in a way that no senator ever has ever been by not caucusing with either party, I find that really fascinating. But the reality is he doesn't owe favors to very many people on the right. And that makes me worried as somebody who you know, works in the political world and sees the realities of how it plays out, what fights you pick, what battles you pick, et cetera. Uh, he probably won't be picking – uh, he, he probably won't be uh, fighting any battles uh, that are the kinds that you or I or many of your listeners might want him to be engaging in. So it's better to have someone you may not entirely agree with and you can debate with civilly, as in Senator Lee's case on the few issues where I think I disagree with him, rather than someone who would be a complete unknown. He could vote all over the place, vote against, I think, Utah interests in the grand scheme of things, vote for gun control legislation, vote for things that wouldn't advance balanced use or true conservation. So I think Utah voters have a clear understanding on these issues with the big picture um, there. Like I said, you can disagree with, I think, his positions and and people want to see, like, will conservation play in the Utah Senate race? I think it will but it won't play to the preservationist point, I think, if, if all goes to plan, more than just conservation for voting. So thank you for indulging me on that. Well, yeah, and I, I do want to add that with the Houses Act, I'm not really fully on board with that either. I'm open to, I'm much more open anyways to uh, using some public lands uh, if if we need to. I, I, I worry that it's uh, kind of jumping the gun. There's a lot of other options for housing before taking lands that- Agreed. Uh, potential, you know, hunting grounds, stuff like that to build residential houses. There's a lot of other things we need to do for housing before we get there. So I just wanted to put that out there before we continue. Yeah, no, I agree too, because that's my initial reading into it and commentary I've seen from people who like Lee, generally speaking, but they said on this issue, they completely dissent with him because of those concerns, because why go to these lands, which are being attacked in different regards? You, I don't know if this applies to Utah, but I think if for future Utah lands were to be opened, I don't know if you saw the lead bans that uh, the Department of Interior has proposed. Any new opening will likely have lead bans for tackle and bullets going forward. And that could apply to Utah as well. And so I think that could be problematic as well. So it it's a very delicate issue with, with selling off public lands and especially converting some of it for um, this type of activity. So no, I think the doubts are warranted. But like I, I was saying, and like you were saying, I think we can know where Lee may have some weaknesses, but at least he's reliable in some other niche areas of conservation. And you can hold him accountable for the public lands bit, but on species conservation, on energy development and firearms, I think most people largely agree. 
and can can work with him and maybe convince him uh, in areas where they need to convince him or or where they disagree and, and they can civilly disagree there. And oh, like I said, over this unknown candidate. So, yeah, I think it's it's good. And I wanted to have more of a debate on the Houses Act. So thank you for sharing some perspective on that as well. Like I said, I'm not taking a formal position. I don't need to take a position. I'm just a commentator. <laughs> we debate on this. So listeners, yeah. we're not, well, we're not, I don't need to take a position. Mm-hmm. It's not anywhere. I mean, you know, my, my uh, apologies to, to Lee's office for saying this, but it's not anywhere near being on the Republican agenda. So it's not even something I don't think so. to worry Mm-mm. about too much. Yeah. It, it's, it's much like the return act where it's kind of a vanity bill. And it's really not going to get serious consideration. It may be heard in committee, but it may not make likely won't make it to the floor, depending upon where the makeup is. But yes, I think that's important for listeners to know it's a vanity bill, won't get anywhere. And people can have exchange of ideas, even if the ideas are flawed. In my opinion, even though he's imperfect, I think Lee would be the true conservationist vote over McMullen, in my personal opinion. Yeah, that's that's where I'm at, too, where I, I have a lot of disagreements with Lee and don't need to go into all of them. Uh, there's I've you know, met with people from his office who I've really liked. I've, I've met with him and, uh, you know, I disagree with him, but yeah, I think that, I think he's, he's definitely the safer pick for those of us who, uh, feel the way we do about politics in Utah. Awesome election update. I wanted to pick your brain on the Andrew. So don't, don't Fred. I think you gave a great answer. Thanks. I, I had that. a feeling I should have watched that debate. Uh, I was, uh, spending some time with, with my wife and son when it was on, but, uh, I need to go back and watch that. So With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at marines.com. Let's talk about our meeting and your participation in part two of my Conservation Nation expose on public land. So for my listeners who weren't aware, we filmed two parts, one in Arizona, which we've already published. Now we're publishing our Utah segment. And Andrew was one of two participants we spoke to. We obviously heard from the county commissioner uh, who has been seen as controversial, but I think he explained his views really well on Bears Ears. And he took us to the Bears Ears areas in question and really dive deep into what was happening there. And so you wanted to talk about Bears Ears and we actually met at Antelope's Island State Park. And and you talked more about obviously the Utah perspective, Bears Ears. And what have you learned about Bears Ears since our meeting and since getting more into this issue? Yes. Yeah. And I should mention that if if anyone wonders if why the footage there might be particularly short um, with the part that I'm in, you know, we were getting ambushed and like the bugs were working for uh, for um, the supporters of the Antiquities Act. So that's that was that was the problem that day. The the bugs on Antelope Island can get really, really bad. But um, so uh, and the question was, what have we learned since then, since recording the video about Bears Ears? Yes. Yeah. So the the state of Utah, the attorney general office has now launched a lawsuit uh, for the uh, reinstating of the monument. Now, the lawsuit is not I mentioned something about the Antiquities Act for your listeners or probably the type that might already be familiar with this. But the Antiquities Act is um, a more than 100 year old law that gives the president authority to take certain um, artifacts or 
place, places on public lands that it's in the interest of the nation to preserve and to declare a national monument. They, the, that process is to write what's called a monument declaration, and it lists the artifacts that are to be preserved and uh, says uh, in, in the act that they must use the smallest amount of space possible to protect those artifacts. So the state of Utah is suing on that line that this uh, this monument, which is larger than some U.S. states, uh, is is not is not keeping that. It's 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 much larger than it needs to be. And part of that is because at least uh, with the 2016 declaration by Obama, uh, solitude, I believe, was one of the quote unquote artifacts that he was uh, preserving. So I love solitude, but I don't think that was the intention of that act. And uh, definitely doesn't justify the amount of land that was taken up with that monument declaration. And let's talk about the co-management update because since we met and recorded our segment for my expose, the co-management announcement, the arrangement between the tribes and the federal government was announced. Could you explain that for my listeners and what that entails and maybe some concerns you have with that co-management? Yes. So, I mean, I'll, I'll say from the offset the fact that the federal government is, is collaborating with these five tribes is something I'm very much in support of. I know of some uh, other conserva- uh, conservation-based uh, think tanks and, and such that, uh, that have come out in, in support of that. I like, in general, the idea that there's stakeholder engagement, although we need more stakeholder engagement than just the tribes. That has been the issue throughout this whole process is not engaging not you know engaging stakeholders based on partisan interests, not on which stakeholders have an interest in the land. Uh, but saying that from the offset, uh, what's happened is the that the Biden administration has uh, has developed a, a management plan by which they will uh, co-steward the land with these five tribes that uh, became part of the lobbying effort for the monument, and. They did something really that I think is real, was really sneaky when uh, the Bureau of Land Management and the Department of the Interior, which is they use the word co-management, but when they use it, they use it very, very carefully because really what's happening isn't, uh, as I understand it, what you would call co-management because the Antiquities Act actually doesn't really allow them to do that. Uh, the Antiquities Act uh, is... Um, does doesn't as as I've understood it and as it's been explained to me does not allow them to bring in the the tribes as uh some as as a body that has to be consulted so they brought them in on what is more appropriately called co stewardship which means they've made a commitment and they've signed I, I think they signed a document which is really just ceremonial and formal to show their dedication to working with the tribes and the management and they have an advisory committee and you know I. I support all of that, but it's, it's, in my opinion, uh, just another false promise. And I think that uh, what the tribes don't understand, uh, maybe, maybe they do, is that, is that because of the very policies that the state of Utah is fighting, fighting against and the kind of land management we're fighting against, the top-down unilateral authority of president, um, federal, you know, domination by federal government, not a lot of local engagement. Those sorts of policies are the very reason why this really isn't the co-management 
plan it claims to be. Uh, I'm just going to read from what uh, I think was the Bureau of Land Management said where they, or you know what, I, I'll i just paraphrase it, but they essentially said co-stewardship, right, includes, uh, you know, a variety of ways of managing the land, which could be co-management. Well, they're saying that because they want you to think it's co-management, but it's not. Co-management, there would be some kind of as I understand it, there'd be some kind of mechanism that requires them to consult with the tribes. The tribes are an actual permanent part. They're an installment within that governing system, right? Uh, to use a metaphor, they're on the city council of that city. But this is more like uh, the BLM has said, we really want the input of the tribes, so we're going to commit to work with them. That is very easily undone. All you need is a president that does not want that scenario to come into play, and he could cancel that in one day. Interesting. And do you think this will apply to other monuments or perhaps I've seen even chatter and reports, I think, from e News and some other websites that cover the energy climate beat that they may even expand this co-sharing or co-management to national parks. Do you see this happening in other Utah public lands? Yes. So the National Park Service is also doing this. The whole Department of the Interior, which is uh, which it, um is the largest manager of public lands. The Forest Service is in the Department of Agriculture, and I can't remember if they're included on this. But yeah, the national parks are are also looking at, at doing some co-stewardship. I don't know the details there as far as um, how how serious that is, what level that will happen. Uh, again, generally, I'm, I'm for it as long as the spirit of this is to have local engagement and not just to... Uh, I mean, to use another overused phrase, not just to not just for the Biden administration to virtue signal. And I am not optimistic that that's not what they're doing. Uh, but, yeah, I, I've, I have heard that as well. I, I haven't seen that. I, I saw something about Zion National Park looking at that, I think, but I haven't read too much about that. Let's also talk about speaking of tribes, the Ute tribe, which is a very interesting tribe. I know. Tribal politics, it tends to lean more to the left, and there's a whole discussion about tribes and autonomy well, and, and all that. And um, I just want I, I just want to butt in here and say though that it, it, they lean left because the the interest groups from the tribes that are getting involved in these battles often lean left. If you go to Navajo Nation, um, if you drive down to southeastern Utah or uh, northeastern Arizona, South, um, if you go into that area and talk to people, uh, from my experience, at least in 2018 when I was down there, this is not their top issue. They're worried about having water, which many of their communities don't have. They're, they're, some of Many of them don't have electricity. They're bringing in water in buckets. Uh, they don't have food. Their government doesn't have tax revenue. They're dependent on a federal bureaucracy, which was not created to serve their interests. They can't, they often can't own or sell land. Uh, it, it's a whole mess. Their, their concern really is the fact that they're living uh, as sort of the, uh, having a third world lifestyle thrust on them by the bureaucracy of the federal government. And they're much more worried about having food than about the way that uh, a, a national monument a hundred miles away from them maybe uh, is being managed. Sorry right. for that rant. No, 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 no. That's okay. That. That, that's good. I, I've met a tribal lawyer Recently, I was actually at a tribal fintech conference and I have to follow up with him to talk about this. And he gave a great lecture about the history of distrust. And if uh, you can argue for property rights on the tribal 
lands and, and tr- uh, reservations. But um, my point to what I was trying to say a little bit before uh, your remarks, um, the Ute tribe actually is sparring with President Biden over a new national monument creation in, nearby in Colorado on ancestral lands. And for listeners who don't know, the Ute tribe actually is one of the few that does oil and gas leasing and development uh, compared to some other tribes who are very against oil and gas. So um, they said that they were not properly consulted with the creation of the monument. Have you heard much about this? Yes. Yeah, so uh, they found out, I think, two days or just a few days before uh, that monument was declared. It, it just it, it sounds very much like what happened in the 90s with Grand Escalante, Grand Escalante in uh, southern Utah when Bill Clinton did not consult the counties or municipalities before launching that monument. It's, uh, it, it shows, I think, that, uh, that those of us who suspect that this is about environmental interests more than tribal interests on the part of the Biden administration, that we might be right. Because why wouldn't you consult the Ute tribe who whose ancestors walked on that land? The, the word Utah, Utah, Uinta, Ute all mean the same thing. It means on the top, you know, from the tops of the mountains or walkers on the tops of the mountains. Those mountains in Colorado where, you know, Biden is, is there with state leaders, uh, indigenous uh, leaders were present, but, you know, not behind him on the stage. He was up there with some Democratic lawmakers. When they were declaring that on, on the Utes' ancestral land, why wouldn't they consult them if they consulted these other tribes? Well, this episode makes me think that it's much more about the environmental lobby, and they know that the Ute tribe uh, is is different than the other tribes that they're consulting. And unfortunately, that puts them on the wrong side of the partisan politics that might be and probably is animating this the, uh, these actions. Yeah, I don't normally see that coverage. I know it's usually slanted to supporting kind of preservationist policies, but I really do hope conservatives reach out to tribal interests and try to seek partnership with them, especially like that of the Ute tribe, given this, because I think you can even talk to them and say, hey, why weren't we consulted on national monument designations? You've said you want are seeking our input, you're seeking our consultation, and we feel slighted. And so maybe personally speaking, I would love to speak to someone from the Ute tribe and get their perspective of why they feel kind of sidelined here. Um, that's not normally discussed in the national monument conservation. So I'm glad this is from, I think, the Colorado Public Radio, their NPR affiliate, a really good piece about the whole issue here about the new monument. What is it called? It's called the Camp Hale National Monument in Colorado. And so I think readers and listeners, you need to check this out um, to see kind of the other side of national monuments, where even if Native interests are prized and, and desired, they're not listening to the tribal perspective because it may not be the tribal perspective they like. Where can people connect with you? What projects and affiliations do you have? I know we had talked about many things when we were together in Utah, but do you have any projects in the works? Are you launching something in the future to kind of marry conservatism with public lands advocacy? Yes. So um, doing conservative environmental uh, campaigns, I, I have been doing that for three years, but in the in the space of climate policy and, and market-based climate policy, with uh, public lands, I am talking with a few other uh, young conservative types, uh, other people who work in the space, we're we're 
looking at launching uh, some kind of advocacy organization. I say some kind because those of you, there might be people listening to this who want to get involved in political advocacy. Before you launch your group, this is really good advice I got. You go out and you make sure that you have talked to all the other stakeholders uh, that that are out there because you don't want to be fulfilling a need that's already met. And what I found talking to uh, state agencies and talking to uh, uh, the county commissioner from San Juan County and others is that this is needed. We need to be playing in the court of public opinion, not just in the courts with this lawsuit. Uh, the narratives have been shaped entirely by those who are pushing for larger monuments, more, you know, quote unquote, preservation. Uh, and we need to be proactive on shaping the narrative so that people understand uh, that uh, well, people understand what's at stake with letting the federal government uh, operate the way it's operating and that people understand that this isn't about us, you know, going in and, uh, you know, uh, ravaging the land for all it's worth. Uh, one of the biggest motivations for being against this monument is the fact that the increased traffic has 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 caused a threat to the uh, sites and that because it's so big, uh, there's more sites that are going to be damaged than had it been smaller with some select front country, like under the uh, 2017 management plan after the Trump designation. But uh, uh, yeah, so we're looking at launching uh, some advocacy in that area. Now, this isn't just limited to Utah, though. Uh, I'm working with some individuals from Alaska. They also care a lot about federal overreach and about improving the role that local stakeholders play in conservation. So if it, it, you know if your listeners are from anywhere across the nation and want to get involved in this, I'll leave you a an email that in that you can put in the description of the podcast. And I would love if if uh, they got in touch with me because there's a lot of work to be done here. Whenever that project comes to fruition, we will put it on blast. And I'm really excited for your plans because I think we do lack a public lands organization. We do have plenty of organizations. My sponsor of the podcast allows me to dabble with public lands issues in the portfolio. Perk does a good job there. But I think we need something more central that attacks the issue or rather addresses the issue head on, um, as sensitive as possible, but as nuanced as needed because yes. it requires an understanding and a grasp of detail and not jumping to these kind of black and white let's say, assumptions of National Monument designations. There's a lot in, in kind of public lands in the great, greater scheme of things. There's a lot to unpack there. So I think we need more attention to detail and not just this rushed preservationist narrative that doesn't account for kind of nuance in this. So, Andrew, where can everyone follow you and connect with you? I mean, uh, you, you know, uh, you can make the perhaps regrettable decision to follow me on Twitter uh, which I'll put the handle for your bio. I believe it's Andrew KS four, five, one, uh, um, R Ray Bradbury fans. Um, if you have ears to hear, uh, but, uh, besides that, get a hold of me in my email. Uh, as this, as this comes along, we'll have more ways to, uh, stay in touch about the campaign itself. And I know, uh, Gabriella, that everyone has been, you know, I know I've been talking about this for a very long time, uh, but it is actually happening. Uh, I do have a toddler and that makes things a little bit slower to launch, but we have other people on the team now and please message me on Twitter, send me an email. Uh, we'd love to have you involved. Wonderful. That is all awesome. And you're a very bright young person. I hope people do connect with you. I would love to see you do more commentary. And I know you probably have some plans to get more involved in that respect. And I 
promised you I will help you find some connections and I hope you do start to contribute to different places because you do have an interesting perspective, a Western perspective that people don't normally hear. So I, I really do hope that you're going to get more involved and by the sound of it, you are. Thank you for coming on the podcast, Andrew. Good to catch up with you. Yeah. And thank you. You're, you're probably the youngest person who's ever told me I'm a uh, bright young man. So thank you for that. No problem. Thanks for listening to District of Conservation. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you haven't already, make sure you find us on your preferred podcast player. We largely circulate on Apple, Spotify, and countless others, but those are our two big podcast platforms we want to push. Make sure you're subscribed there, especially on Apple. If you like the podcast a lot, go leave us some reviews. We'd be more than grateful to get some five-star reviews from you guys. Moreover, we are on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and a little bit on YouTube. We don't populate there, but connect with us on social media. Find me personally on social media with blue check marks. Super easy to find, and I would love to hear your feedback and know who you'd like to see on the podcast. Thanks for listening to District of Conservation. Stay tuned for the next episode.